Deductive Logic by St. George William Joseph Stock, M.A. Part 3 of Inferences, Chapter 30 of Fallacies, 827. After examining the conditions on which correct thoughts depend, it is expedient to classify some of the most familiar forms of error. It is by the treatment of the fallacies that logic chiefly vindicates its claim to be considered a practical rather than a speculative science. To explain and give a name to fallacies is like setting up so many signposts on the various turns which it is possible to take off the road of truth. 828. By a fallacy is meant a piece of reasoning which appears to establish a conclusion without really doing so. The term applies both to the legitimate deduction of a conclusion from false premises and to the illegitimate deduction of a conclusion from any premises. There are errors incidental to conception and judgment which might well be brought under the name, but the fallacies with which we shall concern ourselves are confined to errors connected with inference. 829. When any inference leads to a false conclusion, the error may have arisen either in the thought itself or in the signs by which the thought is conveyed. The main sources of fallacy, then, are confined to two. One, thought. Two, language. 830. This is the basis of Aristotle's division of fallacies, which has not yet been superseded. Fallacies, according to him, are either in the language or outside of it. Outside of language, there is no source of error but thought. For things themselves do not deceive us, but error arises owing to a misinterpretation of things by the mind. Thought, however, may err either in its form or in its matter. The former is the case where there is some violation of the laws of thought. The latter, whenever thought disagrees with its object. Hence, we arrive at the important distinction between formal and material fallacies, both of which, however, fall under the same negative heading of fallacies other than those of language. In the language, in the signs of thought, fallacy, in the form, outside the language, in the thought itself, in the matter. 831. There are then three heads to which fallacies may be referred, namely formal fallacies, fallacies of language, which are commonly known as fallacies of ambiguity, and lastly, material fallacies. 832. Aristotle himself only goes so far as the first step in the division of fallacies, being content to class them according as they are in the language or outside of it. After that, he proceeds at once to enumerate the infinite species under each of the two main heads. We shall presently imitate this procedure for reasons of expediency, for the whole phraseology of the subject is derived from Aristotle's treatise on sophistical refutations, and we must either keep to his method or break away from tradition altogether. Sufficient confusion has already arisen from retaining Aristotle's language while neglecting his meaning. 833. Modern writers on logic do not approach fallacies from the same point of view as Aristotle. Their object is to discover the most fertile source of error in solitary reasoning. His was to enumerate the various tricks of refutation which could be employed by a sophist in controversy. Aristotle's classification is an appendix to the art of dialectic. 834. Another cause of confusion in this part of logic is the identification of Aristotle's twofold division of fallacies, commonly known under the titles of in doctrine and extra diotionem, with the division into logical and material, which is based on quite a different principle. 835. Aristotle's division perhaps allows an undue importance to language in making that the principle of division, and so throwing formal and material fallacies under a common head. 
Accordingly, another classification has been adopted which concentrates attention from the first upon the process of thought, which ought certainly to be of primary importance in the eyes of the logician. This classification is as follows. 836. Whenever, in the course of our reasoning, we are involved in error, either the conclusion follows from the premises, or it does not. If it does not, the fault must lie in the process of reasoning, and we have then what is called a logical fallacy. If, on the other hand, the conclusion does not follow from the premises, the fault must lie in the premises themselves, and we then have what is called a material fallacy. Sometimes, however, the conclusion will appear to follow from the premises until the meaning of the terms is examined, when it will be found that the appearance is deceptive, owing to some ambiguity in the language. Such fallacies as these are, strictly speaking, non-logical, since the meaning of words is extraneous to the science which deals with thought, but they are called semi-logical. Thus we arrive by a different road at the same three heads as before, namely, formal or purely logical fallacies, two, semi-logical fallacies or fallacies of ambiguity, three, material fallacies. 837. For the sake of distinctness, we will place the two divisions side by side, before we proceed to enumerate the infamy species. In the language, fallacy of ambiguity, fallacy. In the form, outside the language, in the matter. Formal or purely logical, logical, fallacy, semi-logical. Fallacy of ambiguity, material. 838. Of one of these three heads, namely formal fallacies, it is not necessary to say much, as they have been amply treated of in the preceding pages. A formal fallacy arises from the breach of any of the general rules of syllogism. Consequently, it would be a formal fallacy to present as a syllogism anything which had more or less than two premises. Under the latter variety comes what is called a woman's reason, which asserts, upon its own evidence, something which requires to be proved. Schoolboys also have been known to resort to this form of argument. You're a fool. Why? Because you are. When the conclusion thus merely reasserts one of the premises, the other must be either absent or irrelevant. If, on the other hand, there are more than two premises, either there is more than one syllogism, or the superfluous premise is no premise at all, but a proposition irrelevant to the conclusion. 839. The remaining rules of the syllogism are more able to be broken than the first, so that the following scheme presents the varieties of formal fallacy which are commonly enumerated. Four terms. Formal fallacy, undistributed middle, illicit process, negative premises, and conclusion. 840. The fallacy of four terms is a violation of the second of the general rules of syllogism. See section 582. Here is a palpable instance of it. All men who write books are authors. All educated men could write books. All educated men, therefore, are authors. Here the middle term is altered in the minor premise to the destruction of the argument. The difference between the actual writing of books and the power to write them is precisely the difference between one who is an author and one who is not. 841. Since a syllogism consists of three terms, each of which is used twice over, it would be possible to have an apparent syllogism with as many as six terms in it. The true name for the fallacy, therefore, is the fallacy of more than three terms. But it is rare to find an attempted syllogism which has more than four terms in it, just as we are seldom tendered a line as a hexameter which has more than seven feet. 842. 
the fallacies of undistributed middle and illicit process have been treated of under sections 585 and 586. The heading Negative Premises and Conclusion covers violations of the three general rules of syllogism relating to negative premises, sections 590 through 593. Here is an instance of the particular form of the fallacy which consists in the attempt to extract an affirmative conclusion out of two negative premises. All salmon are fish, for neither salmon nor fish belong to the class mammalia. The accident of a conclusion being true often helps to conceal the fact that it is illegitimately arrived at. The formal fallacies which have just been enumerated find no place in Aristotle's division. The reason is plain. His object was to enumerate the various modes in which a sophist might snatch an apparent victory, whereas by openly violating any of the laws of syllogism, a disputant would be simply courting defeat. 843. We now revert to Aristotle's classification of fallacies, or rather, of modes of refutation. We will take the species he enumerates in their order, and notice how modern usage has departed from the original meaning of the terms. Let it be borne in mind that when the deception was not in the language, Aristotle did not trouble himself to determine whether it lay in the matter or in the form of thought. 844. The following scheme presents the Aristotelian classification to the eye at a glance. Editorial Note. The listener is referred to the accompanying chapter on the same FCIT website for an illustration of the figure in question. 845. The fallacy of equivocation consists in an ambiguous use of any of the three terms of a syllogism. If, for instance, anyone were to argue thus, no human being is made of paper, all pages are human beings, therefore no pages are made of paper. The conclusion would appear paradoxical if the minor term were there taken in a different sense from that which it bore in its proper premise. This, therefore, would be an instance of the fallacy of equivocal minor. 846. For a glaring instance of the fallacy of equivocal major, we may take the following. No courageous creature flies. The eagle is a courageous creature. Therefore, the eagle does not fly. The conclusion here becomes unsound only by the major being taken ambiguously. 847. It is, however, to the middle term that an ambiguity most frequently attaches. In this case, the fallacy of equivocation assumes the special name of the fallacy of ambiguous middle. Take as an instance the following. Faith is a moral virtue. To believe in the Book of Mormon is faith. Therefore, to believe in the Book of Mormon is a moral virtue. Here the premises singly might be granted, but the conclusion would probably be felt to be unsatisfactory. Nor is the reason far to seek. It is evident that belief in a book cannot be faith in any sense in which that quality can rightly be pronounced to be a moral virtue. 848. The fallacy of amphiboly is an ambiguity attaching to the construction of a proposition rather than to the terms of which it is composed. One of Aristotle's examples may be interpreted to mean either the fact of my wishing to take the enemy or the fact of the enemy's wishing to take me. The classical languages are especially liable to this fallacy owing to the oblique construction in which the accusative becomes subject to the verb. Thus in Latin we have the oracle given to Paris, though of course, if delivered at all, it must have been in Greek. Iote asidia Romanos vincere posse. Pyrrhus the Romans shall, I say, subdue. 
which Pyrrhus, as the story runs, interpreted to mean that he could conquer the Romans, whereas the oracle subsequently explained to him that the real meaning was that the Romans could conquer him. Similar to this, as Shakespeare makes the Duke of York point out, is the witch's prophecy in Henry the Sixth, Second Part Act One, Scene Four. The Duke yet lives that Henry shall depose. An instance of amphiboly may be read on the walls of Windsor Castle, hoc fecit wecum. The king was incensed with the bishop for daring to record that he made the tower, but the latter adroitly replied that what he really meant to indicate was that the tower was the making of him. To the same head may be referred the famous sentence, I will wear no clothes to distinguish me from my Christian brethren. 849. The fallacy of composition is likewise a case of ambiguous construction. It consists, as expounded by Aristotle, in taking words together which ought to be taken separately. For example, is it possible for a man who is not writing to write? Of course it is. Then it is possible for a man to write without writing. And again, can you carry this, that, and the other? Yes, then you can carry this, that, and the other, a fallacy against which horses would protest if they could. 850. It is doubtless this last example which has led to a convenient misuse of the term fallacy of composition among modern writers, by whom it is defined to consist in arguing from the distributive to the collective use of a term. 851. The fallacy of division, on the other hand, consists in taking words separately which ought to be taken together. Any reader whose youth may have been nourished on the Fairchild family may possibly recollect a sentence which ran somewhat on this wise. Henry, said Mr. Fairchild, is this true? Are you a thief and a liar too? But I am afraid he will miss the keen delight which can be extracted at a certain age from turning the tables upon Mr. Fairchild. Thus, Henry said, Mr. Fairchild, is this true? Are you a thief and a liar too? 852. The fallacy of division has been accommodated by modern writers to the meaning which they have assigned to the fallacy of composition, so that by the fallacy of division is now meant arguing from the collective to the distributive use of a term. Further, it is laid down that when the middle term is used distributively in the major premise and collectively in the minor, we have the fallacy of composition, whereas when the middle term is used collectively in the major premise and distributively in the minor, we have the fallacy of division." Thus the first of the two examples appended would be composition and the second division. 1. 2 and 3 are odd and even. 5 is 2 and 3. Therefore, 5 is odd and even. 2. The Germans are an intellectual people. Hans and Fritz are Germans. Therefore, they are intellectual people. 853. As the possibility of this sort of ambiguity is not confined to the middle term, it seems desirable to add that when either the major or minor term is used distributively in the premise and collectively in the conclusion, we have the fallacy of composition, and in the converse case the fallacy of division. Here is an instance of the latter kind in which the minor term is at fault. Anything over a hundredweight is too heavy to lift. These sacks collectively are over a hundredweight. Therefore, these sacks distributively are too heavy to lift. 854. The ambiguity of the word all, which has been before commented upon, see section 119, is a great assistance in the English language to the pair of fallacies just spoken of. 835. The fallacy of accent is neither more nor less than a mistake in Greek accentuation. As an instance, Aristotle cites the Iliad, chapter 23. Aristotle remarks that the fallacy is one which cannot easily occur in verbal argument, but rather in writing and poetry. 856. 
Modern writers explain the fallacy of accent to be the mistake of laying the stress upon the wrong part of a sentence. Thus, when the country parson reads out, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, with a strong emphasis upon the word against, his ignorant audience leap to the conclusion that it is not amiss to tell lies provided they be in favor of one's neighbor. 857. The fallacy of figure of speech results from any confusion of grammatical forms as between the different genders of nouns or the different voices of verbs or their use as transitive or intransitive. A sophism of this kind is put into the mouth of Socrates by Aristophanes in the clouds. The philosopher is there represented as arguing that the Greek Kapadopos must be masculine because Greek Kleonomos is. On the surface, this is connected with language, but it is essentially a fallacy of false analogy. 858. To this head may be referred what is known as the fallacy of peronymous terms. This is a species of equivocation which consists in slipping from the use of one part of speech to that of another, which is derived from the same source, but has a different meaning. Thus, this fallacy would be committed if, starting from the fact that there is a certain probability that a hand at whist will consist of thirteen trumps, one were to proceed to argue that it was probable or that he had proved it. 859. We now turn to the tricks of refutation which lie outside the language, whether the deception be due to the assumption of a false premise or to some unsoundness in the reasoning. 860. The first on the list is the fallacy of accident. This fallacy consists in confounding an essential with an accidental difference, which is not allowable, since many things are the same in essence, while they differ in accidents. Here is the sort of example that Aristotle gives. Is Plato different from Socrates? Yes. Is Socrates a man? Yes. Then Plato is different from man. To this we answer no. The difference of accidents between Plato and Socrates does not go so deep as to affect the underlying essence. To put the thing more plainly, the fallacy lies in assuming that whatever is different from a given subject must be different from it in all respects, so that it is impossible for them to have a common predicate. Here Socrates and Plato, though different from one another, are not so different but that they have the common predicate man. The attempt to prove that they have not involves an illicit process of the major. 861. The next fallacy suffers from the want of a convenient name. It consists in taking what is said in a particular respect as though it held true without any restriction. That is, that because the non-existence is a matter of opinion, that therefore the non-existent is, or again, that because the existent is not a man, that therefore the existent is not. Or again, if an Indian who as a whole is black has white teeth, we should be committing this species of fallacy in declaring him to be both white and non-white, for he is only white in a certain respect. More difficulty, says Aristotle, may arise when opposite qualities exist in a thing in about an equal degree. When, for instance, a thing is half white and half black, are we to say that it is white or black? This question the philosopher propounds, but does not answer. The force of it lies in the implied attack on the law of contradiction. It would seem in such a case that a thing may be both white and not white at the same time. The fact is, so subtle are the ambiguities of language, that even such a question as, is a thing white or non-white, straightforward as it seems, is not really a fair one. We are entitled sometimes to take the bull by the horns and answer with the adventurous interlocutor in one of Plato's dialogues. Both and neither. It may be both in a certain respect, and yet neither absolutely. 862. 
the same sort of difficulties attached to the law of excluded middle, and may be met in the same way. It might, for instance, be urged that it could not be said with truth of the statue seen by Nebuchadnezzar in his dream, either that it was made of gold, or that it was not made of gold, but the apparent plausibility of the objection would be due merely to the ambiguity of language. It is not true on the one hand that it was made of gold in the sense of being composed entirely of that metal, and it is not true on the other that it was not made of gold in the sense of no gold at all entering into its composition. But let the ambiguous proposition be split up into its two meanings, and the stringency of the law of excluded middle will at once appear. 1. It must either have been composed entirely of gold or not. 2. Either gold must have entered into its composition or not. 863. By some writers, this fallacy is treated as the converse of the last, the fallacy of accident being assimilated to it under the title of the fallacia addictos simpliciter ad dictum secundum quid. In this sense, the two fallacies may be defined thus. The fallacy of accident consists in assuming that what holds true as a general rule will hold true under some special circumstances which may entirely alter the case. The converse fallacy of accident consists in assuming that what holds true under some special circumstances must hold true as a general rule. The man who, acting on the assumption that alcohol is a poison, refuses to take it when he is ordered to do so by the doctor, is guilty of the fallacy of accident. The man who, having had it prescribed for him when he was ill, continues to take it morning, noon, and night, commits the converse fallacy. 864. There ought to be added a third head to cover the fallacy of arguing from one special case to another. 865. The next fallacy is ignoratio elenci. This fallacy arises when, by reasoning valid in itself, one establishes a conclusion other than what is required to upset the adversary's assertion. It is due to an inadequate conception of the true nature of refutation. Aristotle, therefore, is at pains to define refutation at full length. Thus, a refutation is the denial of one and the same, not name, but thing, and by means not of a synonymous term, but of the same term as a necessary consequence from the data without assumption of the point originally at issue in the same respect and in the same relation and in the same way and at the same time. The Alentius, then, is the exact contradictory of the opponent's assertion under the terms of the law of contradiction. To establish by syllogism, or series of syllogisms, any other proposition, however slightly different, is to commit this fallacy. Even if the substance of the contradiction be established, it is not enough unless the identical words of the opponent are employed in the contradictory. Thus, if his thesis asserts or denies something, it is not enough for you to prove the contradictory with regard to imitation. There will be need of a further question and answer to identify the two, though they are admittedly synonymous. Such was the rigor with which the rules of the game of dialectic were enforced among the Greeks. 866. Under the head of ignoratio elenci, it has become useful to speak of various forms of argument which have been labeled by the Latin writers under such names as argumentum ad hominem, ad populum, ad vercundium, ad ignoratium, ad baculum, all of them opposed to the argument ad rem, or ad judicium. 867. By the argumentum ad hominem was perhaps meant a piece of reasoning which availed to silence a particular person without touching the truth of the question. Thus a quotation from Scripture is sufficient to stop the mouth of a believer in the inspiration of the Bible. Hume's essay on miracles is a noteworthy instance of the argumentum ad hominem in this sense of the term. 
he insists strongly on the evidence for certain miracles which he knew that the prejudices of his hearers would prevent their ever accepting, and then asks triumphantly if these miracles, which are declared to have taken place in an enlightened age in the full glare of publicity, are palpably imposture, what credence can be attached to accounts of extraordinary occurrences of remote antiquity, and connected with an obscure corner of the globe. The argumentum ad judicium would take miracles as a whole, and endeavor to sift the amount of truth which may lie in the accounts we have of them in every age. 868. In ordinary discourse at the present day, the term argumentum ad hominem is used for the form of irrelevancy which consists in attacking the character of the opponent instead of combating his arguments, as illustrated in the well-known instructions to a barrister. No case. Abuse the plaintiff's attorney. 869. The argumentum ad populum consists in an appeal to the passions of one's audience. An appeal to passion, or to give it a less question, begging, name, to feeling, is not necessarily amiss. The heart of man is the instrument upon which the rhetorician plays, and he has to answer for the harmony or the discord that comes of his performance. 870. The argumentum ad vicundium is an appeal to the feeling of reverence or shame. It is an argument much used by the old to the young, and by conservatives to radicals. 871. The argumentum ad ignorantium consists simply in trading on the ignorance of the person addressed, so that it covers any kind of fallacy that is likely to prove effective with the hearer. 872. The argumentum ad baculum is unquestionably a form of irrelevancy. To knock a man down when he differs from you in opinion may prove your strength, but hardly your logic. A sub-variety of this form of irrelevancy was exhibited lately at a socialist lecture in Oxford, at which an undergraduate, unable or unwilling to meet the arguments of the speaker, uncorked a bottle which had the effect of instantaneously dispersing the audience. This might be set down as the argumentum ad nasum. 873. We now come to the fallacy of the consequent, a term which has been more hopelessly abused than any. What Aristotle meant by it was simply the assertion of the consequent in a conjunctive proposition which amounts to the same thing as the simple conversion of A, see section 489, and is a fallacy of distribution. Aristotle's example is this. If it has rained, the ground is wet. Therefore, if the ground is wet, it has rained. This fallacy, he tells us, is often employed in rhetoric in dealing with presumptive evidence. Thus a speaker, wanting to prove that a man is an adulterer, will argue that he is a showy dresser, and has been seen about at nights. Both these things, however, may be the case, and yet the charge not be true. 874. The fallacy of petitio or assumptio principii, to which we now come, consists in an unfair assumption of the point at issue. The word in Aristotle's name for it points to the Greek method of dialectic by means of question and answer. This fact is rather disguised by the mysterious phrase begging the question. The fallacy would be committed when you asked your opponent to grant overtly or covertly the very proposition originally propounded for discussion. 875. As the question of the precise nature of this fallacy is of some importance, we will take the words of Aristotle himself. People seem to beg the question in five ways, first and most glaringly, when one takes for granted the very thing that has to be proved. This by itself does not readily escape detection, but in the case of synonyms, that is, where the name and the definition have the same meaning, it does so more easily. 
To take the word here in its later and modern sense affords an easy interpretation which is countenanced by Alexander Aphrodisensis, but it is flat against the usage of Aristotle, who elsewhere gives the name synonym not to two names for the same thing, but to two things going under the same name. Secondly, when one assumes universally that which has to be proved in particular, as if a man undertaking to prove that there is one science of contraries were to assume that there is one science of opposites generally. For he seems to be taking for granted, along with several other things, what he ought to have proved by itself. Thirdly, when one assumes the particulars where the universal has to be proved, for in so doing a man is taking for granted separately what he was bound to prove along with several other things. Again, when one assumes the question at issue by splitting it up, for instance, if when the point is to be proved that the art of medicine deals with health and disease, one were to take each by itself for granted. Lastly, if one were to take for granted one of a pair of necessary consequences, as that the side is incommensurable with the diagonal, when it is required to prove that the diagonal is incommensurable with the side. 876. To sum up briefly, we may beg the question in five ways. 1 by simply asking the opponent to grant the point which requires to be proved. 2. By asking him to grant some more general truth which involves it. 3. By asking him to grant the particular truths which it involves. 4. By asking him to grant the component parts of it in detail. 5. By asking him to grant a necessary consequence of it. 877. The first of these five ways, namely, that of begging the question straight off, lands us in the formal fallacy already spoken of in section 838, which violates the first of the general rules of syllogism inasmuch as a conclusion is derived from a single premise, to wit, itself. 878. The second, strange to say, gives us a sound syllogism in Barbara, a fact which countenances the blasphemers of the syllogism in the charge they bring against it of containing in itself a petitio principii. Certainly Aristotle's expression might have been more guarded, but it is clear that his quarrel is with the matter, not with the form in such an argument. The fallacy consists in assuming a proposition which the opponent would be entitled to deny. Elsewhere, Aristotle tells us that the fallacy arises when a truth is not evident by its own light, or is taken to be so. 879. The third gives us an inductio per enumerationem simplicium, a mode of argument which would, of course, be unfair as against an opponent who is denying the universal. 880. The fourth is a more prolix form of the first. 881. The fifth rests on immediate inference by relation. See section 534. 882. Under the head of petitio principii comes the fallacy of arguing in a circle, which is incidental to a train of reasoning, in its most compressed form, it may be represented thus. 1. B is A. C is B. Therefore, C is A. 2. C is A. B is C. Therefore, B is A. 883. The fallacy of non causa pro causa is another, the name of which has led to complete misinterpretation. It consists in importing a contradiction into the discussion and then fathering it on the position controverted. Such arguments, says Aristotle, often impose upon the users of them themselves. The instance he gives is too recondite to be of general interest. Lastly, the fallacy of many questions is a deceptive form of interrogation when a single answer is demanded to what is not really a single question. 
In dialectical discussions, the respondent was limited to a simple yes or no, and in this fallacy the question is so framed as that either answer would seem to imply the acceptance of a proposition which would be repudiated. The old stock instance will do as well as another. Come now, sir, answer yes or no. Have you left off beating your mother yet? Either answer leads to an apparent admission of impiety. A late senior proctor once enraged a man at a fair with this form of fallacy. The man was exhibiting a blue horse, and the distinguished stranger asked him, With what did you paint your horse? The end of chapter 30. Read by Rick Kistner for Lit2Go on the web at fcit.usf.edu.